0: broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia. It's time for Health Connect South Radio, brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health, serving as a gateway between health industry silos. We seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio.
1: Hey, what's up everyone? It's CW and this week on the Health Connect South radio show, we feature two more innovative Atlanta healthcare companies, each working to improve patient outcomes with their respective solutions. Bailey Ernstis and Jake Kaslow came by to talk about Monitor Med Solutions. This is their startup device company working on a technology to help hydrocephalus patients. Hydrocephalus is a problem that as many as one Than 500 babies are born with each year. This is a situation where there's an abnormality that interferes with the flow of cerebral spinal fluid, leading to an excessive pressure on the brain, and that can cause serious neurologic problems and even death. Monitor Med Solutions is developing a monitoring device that allows hydrocephalus patients to get real-time intracranial pressure readings that gives them an idea of how well their intracranial shunt is working. These shunts are designed to modulate the flow of cerebral spinal fluid and prevent excess pressure from developing. The trouble is intracranial shunts fail as frequently is 40% of the time becoming blocked by the fine seaweed-like filaments that are part of the lining of the ventricles in the brain. Typically, these patients don't realize there's a problem with the shunt until they begin to show neurologic signs, and that's problematic. This technology will allow them to be much more proactive in seeking care, as well as potentially helping them avoid unnecessary trips to the emergency room if they're able to know exactly what their pressure is doing. Here's Bailey talking about how they're tackling this problem. Check it out.
2: Hydrocephalus is a condition that affects approximately one in every 500 Americans from birth. And not many people are familiar with it, but it's a buildup of cerebrospinal fluid within the ventricles of the brain. And if this is left untreated, it can lead to severe brain damage and even death because of the buildup of pressure over time of this accumulating fluid. And you'll actually see if you look at images of infants with hydrocephalus, you can see their heads are actually quite swollen and large. And the way that they treat this currently is by implanting a shunt system that uses catheters in a valve to drain fluid from the brain to the abdomen. And this is something that's implanted for life. People who have shunts typically do have them for life. And the issue that we face today is that shunts have been minimally innovated since they were invented in the 1950s. As of now, about 40% fail within just the first year of placement, which is huge, even especially when you're looking at a pediatric population. So we've spoken with families that have been through several surgeries with their young kids, constantly worried about their shunts failing. So what we have done as a company, we decided to look at that and look at a way that we could help families understand when the shunts are failing because right now the only way to know if your shunt is failing is through vague symptoms of headache, nausea, vomiting. And in a kid especially, that's something that happens all the time. And it would be very apprehensive as a parent to not know whether or not your child was having a shunt failure. So we developed an accessory for hydrocephalus shunts that allows patients to monitor intracranial pressure from a cell phone so that they don't have to go to the emergency room to get that value or to immediately get a CT scan just for a headache. They have a little, just to give them a little bit more information on how the shunt is functioning and being able to do that at home.
1: And Jim Sullivan, he's the CEO of a company called Heal Pros. This company is working to close the gap in the delivery of recommended annual eye exams for diabetic patients. This population is at risk for developing blindness due to damage to the retina caused by elevated glucose levels. As many as 12 to 24,000 people go blind every year due to retinopathy. And because retinal damage can take years to develop to the point that it affects eyesight, many asymptomatic patients who aren't having any problems yet don't bother to to go get their annual checks. Now, with new requirements that focus on prevention and outcomes, there's a need to try and improve compliance with these site saving annual exams. HealPros is using teleimaging technology coupled with mobile on site technologists who can travel to a physician's office or even the patient's home to facilitate these annual exams. They work with healthcare plan providers and physicians' offices to coordinate care on these patients and increase the likelihood that they can catch these troubles early. They're able to communicate their findings back to the patient patient, physician, and healthcare plan providers and allow action to be taken if abnormalities are found. Here's Jim talking about their innovative approach to this preventive care. Check it out.
3: Sometimes not very easy to describe the solution we created. Ultimately, we put together a full logistical platform to move patients into compliance with their annual eye exam. That was our first product called iComply. And the idea was the need that was driving that was that health plans have become responsible for patient behavior today. So ultimately, years ago, they were responsible to put together a provider network, and to adjudicate claims besides being finance companies. Well, since they've been managing Medicaid and Medicare, they're now responsible for the outcomes their patients face. So instead of just making sure those networks are available to their patients to see a doctor, they now have to make sure that if you have diabetes annually, you're checking your eyes. If you have heart problems, that you're taking your medicine. If you have diabetes, that you're taking your uh, uh, diabetes medication. So to do that, they either have to trigger the patient by calling them, saying, please do this, or they have to trigger the provider by saying, please make sure these patients do it. It's not working. So every year, 15 million people a year are not getting their eyes checked that have diabetes. That's about half the existing population. So the traditional approach to dealing with this was to look at behavioral models, to changing patient behavior, you know, or changing physicians' interest in getting patients to do things. Uh, It hasn't worked. So what we did is, with our background in radiology and telehealth and telemedicine, put together an offering that said, we're going to bring the care to the patient. We're going to close the gap for the plan. Meaning we're going to take full risk, they're going to give us 10, 20,000 people and we're going to go get them and bring the care to their home, to their primary care practice or wherever they might be at a health fair and facilitate and coordinate all that care, which includes getting the physician to do the readings remotely, getting the health plan to receive the claims, getting the PCP to get the results, and then also sending the results to the patient. So we have a full outsource solution for all the programs we develop for health plans, which includes the call center for outreach and scheduling, the text to go to the home or to the primary care practice, the equipment that actually facilitates the care, the actual physicians to do the interpretations. And then we close the loop with the analytics and all the data delivery. So it's a full outsource solution. So luckily the plans we've been working with for about two years now active in the market have decided to go nationwide this year. So some of the large health plans like United Healthcare, Centene, which is Peach State is part of Centene and Molina are going national in October. So they're rolling this out nationwide.
1: We've got the full interview with Bailey Ernstus, Jake Caslow, and Jim Sullivan coming up next. Welcome to Health Connect South Radio this morning, the 29th episode of the show.
4: It's always great to be here.
1: And as as always, we're joined by Diana Keough of Sherwick Media. If you're not familiar with Sherwick Media Group, they're a company that helps companies tell their story with high-quality videography and a host of other digital media options, as well as print media. They can help you produce social media content and website content that keep your customers coming back for more information and keeping them engaged with you. So get to know Sherwick Media Group at Sherwick.com. If you're not already familiar, and then this morning on the show, we're going to be joined in the studio with a couple of companies that are doing some cool things with technology. We're sitting down with Bailey Ernstus and Jay Caslow of Monitor Med Solution. Thanks for taking some time. Coming around the corner from uh, the Georgia Tech area.
2: Thank you so much. We're happy to be here.
1: <laughs> it was a long hop, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Pretty far.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and then we've got Jim Sullivan. He's the CEO of Heal Pros, and they're a technology company also utilizing telephony and teleradiology, teleimaging as a component of what they do, helping the diabetic population try to avoid blindness, actually. Thanks for taking some time, Jake. Thank you for having me. We'll start with you all. Talk to us a little bit about your background. How did this whole thing t- come about? Because from what I understand, MonitorMed Solutions is focused on trying to help folks who have experienced hydrocephalus.
2: Yes, that is correct. So
1: for the folks who aren't familiar with hydrocephalus, uh, you want to talk about that and and your solution a little bit, and then we'll get into kind of how you got here.
2: Hydrocephalus is a condition that affects approximately one in every 500 Americans from birth. And not many people are familiar with it, but it's a buildup of cerebrospinal fluid within the ventricles of the brain. And if this is left untreated, it can lead to severe brain damage and even death because of the buildup of pressure over time of this accumulating fluid. And you'll actually see if you look at images of infants with hydrocephalus, you can see their heads are actually quite swollen and large. And the way that they treat this currently is by implanting a shunt system that you uses catheters in a valve to drain fluid from the brain to the abdomen. And this is something that's implanted for life. People who have shunts typically do have them for life. And the issue that we face today is that shunts have been minimally innovated since they were invented in the 1950s. As of now, about 40% fail within just the first year of placement, which wow. is huge, even especially when you're looking at a pediatric population. So we've spoken with families that have been through several surgeries with their young kids, constantly worried about their shunts failing. So what we have done as a company, we decided to look at that and look at a way that we could help families understand when the shunts are failing. Because right now, the only way to know if your shunt is failing is through vague symptoms of headache, nausea, vomiting. And in a kid, especially, that's something that happens all the time. And it would be very apprehensive as a parent to not know whether or not your child was having a shunt failure. So we developed an accessory for hydrocephalus shunts that allows patients to monitor intracranial pressure from a cell phone so that they don't have to go to the emergency room to get that value or to immediately Get a CT scan just for a headache. They have a l- just to give them a little bit more information on how the shunt is functioning and being able to do that at home.
1: When, you, when we spoke the other day, I was surprised because I asked the question: mm-hmm. How f- how often does hydrocephalus occur? And you were saying as many as one in five hundred births, uh, as correct. many as two hundred thousand people a year are, are dealing with hydrocephalus.
2: That's correct. And and um, I, that's roughly six hundred thousand born with hydrocephalus every year, which is shocking. Um, which I it, had no
4: it, idea. It was right. Right,
2: Right. And um, it, it's even aside from the people who are born with hydrocephalus, many older people actually do develop hydrocephalus later in life. And it's something that's commonly misdiagnosed for dementia. Uh, they don't really know unless they go in and do a CT scan to see that the ventricles are enlarged, but that can actually cause dementia dementia-like symptoms in a lot of elderly uh, patients as well.
4: And so how would it develop in an elderly patient just over time or how? I mean, explain that to me.
5: So you can have a couple of ways. Um, One, so you have two types. One, the brain just produces too much fluid, and so that causes a pressure buildup. Or two, sometimes you can have um, a blockage of the way it's supposed to normally drain, so that can sometimes cause it. Um, Obviously, if it develops later, generally the brain's not just all of a sudden producing too much fluid, you can have a blockage sometimes. And
4: is it a vascular issue or...? A a neurological issue or where is that kind of, especially in elderly patients, where is that categorized?
5: Uh, Generally more. So it's it's more treated by neurosurgeons, but it's more of a a neurological issue.
4: I got it. So of all the things that y'all could have done, you know, all the sandboxes you could have played in, why this one?
2: Um, oddly enough, so Jake and I are both graduates from, uh, Georgia Tech. And we have worked with our, we're both biomedical engineers and every engineering student at Georgia Tech does a capstone project. And our project was sponsored by, uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and also a charitable foundation called Ian's Friends Foundation that works to solve pediatric Uh, neurology problems specifically most commonly with pediatric cancers but other neurological problems as well and we were tasked with the with a challenge to help the hydrocephalus community in some way in that capstone course and in doing so we um,
4: I mean when you got that assignment where you're like what
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we so it it was an interesting process going through it but We ultimately decided, I mean, Georgia Tech does a great job of setting people up to get out and first figure out what the problems are. Like they really put a lot of focus on defining the problem before you even try to find a solution because that's where a lot of people mess up. So we got out there and we got in touch with over 550 families that had hydrocephalus by uh, sending out a survey through different associations and foundations. And um, by doing that, we really got a better understanding of what their problems were and what these families deal with on a day-to-day basis and moving forward that's where we decided to focus on malfunction detection as something that really needed improving because it's something that hasn't been provided thus far. Yeah. Is, uh, How
1: responsive were the folks when you sent your survey out do you, what kind of you know response rate did you get out of those 500? How many returned something? to Oh, you? that's
2: how many returns. we Oh, had. I see. Um, because it, it was kind of generally broadcasted. I, I know see. a lot of the foundations posted on their Facebook page and things like that. Um, but we actually got over 550 responses and those families were very excited and, uh, willing to provide information, I think because they, they look for new, new ways that, hydrocephalus can be improved.
4: So tell me what kind of questions that you were asking on the survey. Like what kind of information were you trying to pry out of them?
2: At first, we just, we wanted to keep it open-ended. So we asked them what they thought the biggest problem with their shunt was currently. And this was either people who had their own shunts or had a kid with a shunt. And um, generally speaking, most of them said the failure rate, like it's, it's abominable. The the fact that these fail all the time I've had this many surgeries like usually they would expand and kind of tell us our us their story of what they've been through Um, and we also asked what they what they wanted to see in new shunts what what new thing would really help them out and they said that a way to check their intracranial pressure would be great that they would really really uh, benefit from that and that they would like to have that information So those were two of our main questions.
1: Interesting. So that was a repeating theme. People kept saying if we could only know what our pressures are before it gets to the place where we're having problems.
2: Absolutely. Interesting.
5: I think that was something that surprised us a little bit because as engineers, we look at, we say, well, the problem is that they fail. And so we assume that people would be like, well, I want something that doesn't fail or doesn't fail as often. But really, I think within the community, there seemed to be a lot of hesitancy towards new technology there because they've kind of seen different things come and go that didn't really work. And so I think they really just said, you know, we've got this problem. We just want to know when we're having this problem. And I, I think we were surprised that that was the overall answer. Um, but that was the overwhelming, I think, within the 550 that we spoke to.
1: For the folks that have these shunts and they're, you know, we're talking about the fact that a high percentage of them, what, 40 percent or so uh, have a problem and end up failing. Um, is there a common reason is, that that causes that? Is there a clotting problem or what what's causing that to, to get?
2: About about 70% of the time, it's an issue with clogging in the proximal catheter, the one that's inserted into the ventricle of the brain. And um, in talking to neurologists and neurosurgeons, they've explained that um, the tissue that's in the ventricles, it's called choroid plexus, and it's kind mm-hmm. of a seaweed-like tissue, and that's very easy to get clogged if you think of even like a gutter. Mm-hmm. Um, that gets clogged very easily within the catheter holes, and that can cause a blockage that leads to increased pressure. If, if it's no longer able to drain, then you're going to have a buildup of pressure and the shunt will fail
1: and Then I guess when I think about it the, the function is going to be p- pulling fluid out so it's mm-hmm. going to draw near objects or, right, or right. substances right. to it So uh, and this
4: is a process that happens in our brains naturally I mean mm-hmm. it's, we have fluid constantly yeah. rotating right, it's down constantly to the spinal column and back again mm-hmm. I guess
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
4: and so how does this you know explain the process like walk me through the platform or how, how exactly does this work
2: how does our device work Mm-hmm. Uh, so we took the, the general form of a shunt system, which consists of the proximal catheter, a valve, and then a distal catheter that goes to the abdomen. And some of these shunt systems also have a reservoir between the proximal catheter and the valve, or it might be in the valve. And the function of this reservoir is so that neurosurgeons can go in and tap it with a needle. And that gives a pressure reading in a hospital setting that they can use to determine the intracranial pressure. So we took the idea of that reservoir and we reconstructed it to contain electrical components, to contain a pressure sensor that would take pressure readings from within the brain and then use Bluetooth LE technology to transmit it to a cell phone. So we, we reconstructed that aspect of it so that um, it could provide pressure values to patients. And that's the overall, overall what we've done to change it. It's complete. The way we've designed it is so that it would be completely compatible with all current shunt systems. They use the same inner and outer diameter of tubing mm-hmm. for the catheters across uh, any shunt producing company. So we designed it to be compatible with all of those. And then uh, we're in the process of finishing our second prototype now so that it is small enough to be inserted and also MRI compatible because we had these patients get MRIs often uh, to check the shunt and check the ventricles. And so it, it can't contain any magnetic metals.
4: Now, listeners cannot see how young both of you are. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and
4: either you're very young or I'm just getting old.
1: Um, We're getting Do- old. Doogie houses
4: Yeah. Um, so as a listener base, they're very young. So when you're you know, you've just explained this magnificent process. When you're going to Children's Hospital or trying to get investment, um, how are, how are people responding to you?
2: I think it it is a little more difficult to be taken seriously as a young uh, young innovator. However, we've we've been fortunate enough to partner with a startup accelerator this summer called NeuroLaunch, and they have a very extensive mentor network. And we've been able to make connections through them. And some uh, some helpful advice we've received this summer, not only from them but from other people, is to. Um, definitely expand your network and sort of leverage your contacts to get in touch with other people because I think it's harder for us to approach experts in the business area or in neuroscience or neurosurgery, just as we are ourselves, because we're not MDs, we're not PhDs. However, I think we can use our network to get in touch with those people we need to get in touch with. And ultimately, we believe that we do have a very valid cause and solution to a problem. So that drives us to continue and push it forward.
4: Now, are you one of the products that's being taken under the wing of the Georgia Tech Research Institute as well? I mean, no. Um, so they, you know, Georgia Tech has actually got almost an incubator within itself that helps companies with it in Georgia Tech. I mean, it's a cooperation between um, Georgia Tech and also Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. So
5: yeah, I think that we we looked at that and Neural as we were kind of coming out of Georgia Tech because we certainly recognized that we had this product that we believed in and we wanted to take it further, but. We didn't really know all the steps. And so there were a handful of avenues provided by Georgia Tech. And then Neural Launch was just more specific to what we wanted to do. So when we were accepted into Neural Launch, I think that was kind of the route we chose to go. And I think we're glad we did. Um, they've been able to provide a lot of help.
4: And so in the process where you are, I mean, the platform or the device has been developed already, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, are you manufacturing it? Do you have customers? Where are you in that process? So
5: we currently have a prototype and we're looking to move into preclinical trials. Um, You know, we want to validate that it functions and it's safe in an animal model. And then moving forward, we'll move into FDA regulations.
4: Okay and so funding like who's how are you what's your business model who's paying mm-hmm. you
2: ultimately in in the end when this is uh, a purchase device it would be purchased by hospitals uh, the way that they uh, sort of pay for shunt procedures now is there's one Cpt code for reimbursement of a shunt insertion and that's bundled in with the cost of any devices you use in that so it it gets a, a little bit tricky for us because hospitals are not incentivized to use the most high-tech Uh, devices because they cost more and they're only getting one payment no matter what they use. However, we believe that we can provide a return on investment to hospitals because even if we prevent uh, one ER visit from a patient that doesn't need to go, That'll save them money because they don't have to pay for a CT scan. They don't have to pay for the hospital staff to see that patient. That it's something that we've developed out further, but we believe that we have a good return on investment to hospitals. So ultimately, it'll be purchased by them, um, and that's that's how our business model will work. But we believe that um, that that decision to stack to stock the device will also be driven by patients and physicians because the ones that we've spoken to thus far. Want it very much, and it would. We believe that it would be the new standard of care within hospitals.
4: And so, as far as I know, that Google always advises you know, the 10 best or 10 things about Google, they always say, Do th- do one thing well. And I know that you guys are thinking that's the one application, but you know, thinking ahead five years from now, once you get the FDA approval, what other applications does this, this process have?
5: So, I mean, one you know, neurosurgeons we've talked to, um, they you know. Uh, monitoring ICP is definitely a valuable vital sign to be able to look at. And so within just even still that realm, um, if there's like a traumatic brain injury and things like that, where there could be swelling, being able to monitor intracranial pressure there would be valuable. Um, and then beyond that, there's other fluid cavities that, you know, within, with throughout the body that would be valuable to measure the pressure there. So kind of stick with this, you know, vertical right now in hydrocephalus, but then as it is approved and, you know, and available on the market, kind of alter it as needed to, to be available for other, other applications. But there's definitely within that, you know, certainly a commodity and being able to monitor pressure and transmit it out that easily.
4: So both of you are same major in school. Um, how have you kind of split up the duties of running a company?
2: So it's actually we have we have a third co-founder who who's not here today Carrie Simpson but we had the three of us have split up responsibilities this summer. I'm the CEO so I handle more of our business development tasks and pitching to investors or just pitching in general. Um Jake is our chief technical officer so he works more closely with the prototyping. Yeah. And then Carrie is our chief operations officer.
4: And as far as expanding, like is Neural Launch helping you kind of put your executive team together as far as and, and matching you with investors and how's that going?
2: They have, we have a demo day coming up on August 24th and that's, I believe they're expecting over 200 investors flying in for that. So we'll we'll give a pitch there and have a table and hopefully make some good connections there. We're hoping to find an investor at that point for our next round of funding. Uh, But moving forward, I think that we can also use the networks that we've established to look for other investors.
4: When I was at the Neural Launch um, the last demo day, I felt like I was at a really high-tech science fair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine. Yeah. We've been talking with the founders of MonitorMid Solutions, Bailey Ernstis and Jake Kaslow talking about the solution that they've been developing to help folks who are uh, born with hydrocephalus or develop it later in life and ultimately require a shunt to be placed in the ventricles of the brain that helps modulate the uh, the ventricular pressure uh, by uh, controlling the flow of the uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And we talked about the fact that those shunts fail frequently, almost half the time, and uh, often require repeat surgeries and treatments to, uh, to correct. That can cause, obviously, some big uh, neurological problems when those uh, develop the problems that they have and we talked about the technology that you're using and I'm curious it's been long enough for me now and I really didn't go down that path I was more on the cardiovascular side of things so the neurology things um, have more or less uh, been forgotten by me so I don't recall you know, where, does the, where does the equipment live uh, on the, is there an external piece that uh, at all or the shunt is completely contained in the body and, and how do you access it in terms of like the longevity of the device and that kind of thing
2: it's completely contained. It's something that's fully implanted. Uh, the way they that shunt systems sit now, you have the catheter that goes into the brain, and then a valve that sits uh, subcutaneously, just around the back of the neck, and then the distal catheter is uh, also subcutaneous down to the abdomen, and that's the way they currently are. Our reservoir would also sit subcutaneous on the skull, uh, so we're we're keeping it to a low profile so that it's not something that's you know bulging out uh but that's where it would sit is subcutaneous and it would be completely implanted uh right now we're it's it's something that we hope to prototype further in the future but right now we're using a coin cell battery to operate our device and it has a uh battery life comparable to that of a pacemaker as of now so it would it would be accessed the same way that a pacemaker is And since it's subcutaneous, it wouldn't be too difficult to change the battery out. However, we're we're looking into other options that would be a little more renewable or rechargeable.
1: Now, for the technology that you're using, the monitoring... equipment, if you will, the whatever whatever you would call mm-hmm. the device that's going to actually sense the pressure and so forth. Did you have to develop that or was there some technology out there that was being purposed for something else that you were able to use in this way?
5: Right, right. So that's something that we were able to find something that existed on the market to sense the pressure. Um, you know, as we move forward and develop future iterations of the device, I think that that's something that we might look to re-engineer to find something that's specifically purposed for this. But the advantage of some of the recent technology advancements in smaller, you know, um, smaller, everything smaller in electronics is that that's kind of allowed us to, to do this with a lot of off the shelf, uh, pieces and do it on a low energy scale. Like as you mentioned, it's an implanted device, so we don't want it to be changed regularly because that doesn't solve any problems. It right. just adds more surgeries. Um, so fortunately everything can kind of go passive and it's only really streaming information when the, when the app is reaching out to it. So that really, the, the power consumption is is negligible 90% of the time, except for when they're reaching out to it.
1: And when we spoke the other day, I mentioned one of the things we want to try to help you get out there is what do you need. Um, mm. Clearly, we talked about the fact that you're early on, so funding is, is something that you're seeking. Um, looking to put together a scientific advisory board and looking for folks to join you in that capacity as well?
2: Yes, absolutely. We have, we have a number of contacts in neurosurgery, but we're always looking to meet more neurosurgeons and get their feedback, and we, we ultimately would like to add more to our scientific vi- advisory board from the neurosurgery world. Uh, we're also seeking experts in business development and uh, industry moving forward to place on our scientific advisory board. So anybody who has successfully exited a medical startup would be fabulous, or also anybody who's uh, a little more familiarized with the industrialization of medical devices.
1: Do you anticipate being able to collaborate with other device organizations of some kind or other network that might help you once you get to that place where you can not have to hire an army of people to go out and contact
2: the right, hospitals and right. the doctors and so I forth? Right, I think um, ultimately our, our goal is acquisition. We would like to be acquired by a larger device company mm. because they already have the sales channel set up. They can do this a lot more efficiently than we could. Um, so that would ultimately be what we would like to do.
4: So do you guys have your patent in place already?
2: We, we do have a provisional patent in place and we're working with our lawyers on developing, um, filing a utility patent at the end of the year. Yeah,
5: they have a patent strategy. Involving yeah, we have, like we have an IP
2: of... strategy set up <laughs> to maybe file a couple more provisional patents to fully encompass our technology once it's, it's set and fined. And then we'll file the utility patent towards the end of this year.
1: What do you see as a horizon for, for time? Uh, from where you stand now it, with your prototype to you mentioned the fact that you need to go through some clinical trials uh, on the animal side and then obviously move over to the human side. How, how, how long does that take for you?
5: So ideally through towards the end of this fall, uh, finish up funding and then move forward with the prototype we have into an animal trial model to either in November, December this year or early into next year. Um, and that should last about six months and then seek funding to move Towards the uh, the FDA and, and trials there. Um,
4: so with animal trials, how, how does one go about getting in a device into that? Like
5: so where do you start with that? Fortunately, you have uh, we've actually talked with T3 Labs and they're very helpful in because they've done it before and so they provide the space and protocols and they actually reach out to the FDA to make sure that everything is, you know, this the data they're going to want to see to give us the approval to go ahead into the, you know, to the trials there. So they actually kind of create the protocol and, and give you the space and, uh, and the, the you know, the the animals and the surgeons and everything so they kind of set it all up.
4: This might be a dumb question, but do animals are they born with the same issue or do we have to basically put it into the animals brain and then what happens then?
5: So I think that they have um, sheeps that are that do they can, that they can have hydrocephalus. Um, for our particular device, it's not necessarily crucial that they have this condition because it's just sensing the pressure and transmitting it out. So we're kind of in discussions now about how necessary that is because it changes costs, obviously, if you're trying to uh, use a, a more specific model. So for us, like I said, if it's just transmitting pressure out, it'll transmit pressure out even if things are in normal condition. Um, and so, the
4: trials are done not in rats, but in actually in sheep?
5: Uh, they're looking at either at sheep or dogs, um, our canine model. So those are kind of the two options now. And, and it's just kind of what provides the best model that they're going to want to see. Um, so, you know, it's the most safe testing.
4: Interesting. Well, it's remarkable what you guys have accomplished. I mean, already. And when did you actually graduate? May. we need the rest of us in this room need to get busy chop (laughs) chop i hope you got an a on your project
1: we did (laughs) we did anything else that we need to cover to uh to make sure we get the word out about all things monitor med solutions for you so that you folks know, know how I, to help you out.
2: I really appreciate the time that you all have taken in having us out here. I know, um, if any, if any families are listening that know anyone with hydrocephalus or if you deal with it personally, like, First of all, I give my personal uh, support to you because the, the, after working with so many families, we've realized how difficult that can be and the struggles that a lot of families really go through in dealing with that. But um, if anybody's listening who's interested in, in helping or just interested in general, they're welcome to reach out to us through our website. It's uh, www.monitormed.net. Um, but, you know, and anybody is welcome to reach out. We're always happy to connect with people.
1: I linked up with you on Twitter as well, so folks mm-hmm. can stay Great. up with your progress along the way as well for listening to us.
4: And we'd love to have you back when you guys get a little bit further down the road as well. Oh, we would,
2: we would like that a lot.
1: Uh, we'll have to, yeah, get some progress reports. <laughs> <laughs> And we, the next, uh, our next guest, Jim Sullivan from uh, Heal Pros. They're an organization that is using uh, telephonic technology to be able to help patients have who have diabetes to prevent blindness. Uh, as many as twelve to twenty-four thousand people a year go blind due to diabetes. I did not realize that until we started looking at. Uh, uh, our conversation today and from what I understand, your, your folks are able to go into primary care offices and actually conduct some exams that would identify early on if there's some problems with retinopathy or other things developing that would lead them to, to blindness?
3: Yeah, sometimes not very easy to describe the solution we created. Ultimately, we put together a full logistical platform To move patients into compliance with their annual eye exam. That was our first product called iComply. And the idea was the need that was driving that was that health plans have become responsible for patient behavior today. So ultimately, years ago, they were responsible to put together provider networks and to adjudicate claims, besides being finance companies. Well, since they've been managing Medicaid and Medicare, they're now responsible for the outcomes their patients face. So instead of just making sure those networks are available to their patients to see a doctor, they now have to make sure that if you have diabetes annually, you're checking your eyes. If you have heart problems, that you're taking your medicine. If you have diabetes, that you're taking your uh, uh, diabetes medication. So to do that, they either have to trigger the patient by calling them saying, please do this, or they have to trigger the provider by saying, please make sure these patients do it. It's not working. So every year, 15 million people a year are not getting their eyes checked that have diabetes. That's about half the existing population. So the traditional approach to dealing with this was to look at behavioral models to changing patient behavior, you know, or changing physicians' interest in getting patients to do things. Uh, it hasn't worked. So what we did is, with our background in radiology and telehealth and telemedicine, put together an offering that said, we're going to bring the care to the patient, we're going to close the gap for the plans, meaning we're going to take full risk, We're going they're going to give us 10, 20, 20,000 people, and we're going to go get them and bring the care to their home, to their primary care practice or wherever they might be at a health fair and facilitate and coordinate all that care, which includes getting the physician to do the readings remotely, getting the health plan to receive the claims, getting the PCP to get the results, and then also sending the results to the patient. So we have a full outsource solution for all the programs we develop for health plans, which includes the call center for outreach and scheduling, the text to go to the home or to the primary care practice, the equipment that actually facilitates the care, the actual physicians to do the interpretations, and then we close the loop with the analytics and all the data delivery. So it's a full outsource solution. So luckily, the plans we've been working with for about two years now active in the market have Decided to go nationwide this year. So, some of the large health plans like United Healthcare, Centene, which is Peach State, is part of Centene, and Molina are going national in October. So, they're rolling this out nationwide, which is pretty exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a long road, uh, five years. So, you know, wow. five years. Uh, so, talk
1: about the evolution. How did you land in this particular space? Because the, the website talks about teleradiology, for example. How did, yeah. how
3: did this whole He's come together for just about twelve, thirteen years, I've been in and around radiology and telehealth. Uh, we formed and sold a private practice group. We uh, built a radiology billing company. We've owned imaging centers and a radiology advisory firm, all in radiology and telehealth. Uh, I uh, was a passive partner for the last four years as I was building this. One thing I realized in these meetings uh, in with CEOs of hospitals was, the conversation around radiology was, how do we increase outpatient CT and MR? That's advanced radiology. There's a lot of money in that. And it didn't feel like a very fulfilling conversation. You know, it was never around patient care or what we're trying to accomplish for the patient. It was around how we grow this volume of business. Um, so,
4: Which is a little bit disingenuous, but we'll get back to yeah. that. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah but, but that's the realities of surviving as a hospital. You know, if they don't survive, then all the other benefits they deliver um don't, don't, aren't available to the patient. So, um, uh, we set out to say, where is the market going? The market is moving to outcomes, not fee for service. We know that, right? The market is moving to how do we produce lower costs more efficiently? So what we did is we started exploring in, in 2010, I set out on an exploration project, stepped out of the radiology actively and said, uh, Where's the market going? The market's moving to quality outcomes. The market is obviously moving to chronic care management. So we settled on the diabetes space within the uh, health plan world because we said, look, in every state there are hundreds and hundreds of hospitals and providers to sell to, but in the state there's only six or eight health plans. So we made a decision that we thought the 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 greatest. Uh, valued agent in this delivery of care was the health plan. They had the greatest to win or lose in things being efficient. Like for your offer, I'm I'm assuming if there's a carve out for readmissions for patients, the health plan will win the most. So we decided to shift that strategy and we started designing offers around what the health plan needed. Uh, and with our first program, I comply. we hit on the most difficult measure that health plans have been trying to solve out of the 37 HEDIS measures they care about, and that was the, the annual diabetic eye exam. So we, we built ourselves on that program, and now we've since expanded into hemoglobin A1C Cholesterol, microalbumin, and colorectal screening. So we're beginning to expand now that we have the logistical network and the platform built out. We can roll this out to other services. So
4: so how how is this all done? I mean, this is all. I mean, I've known you for gosh since you started this.
3: Pretty much. Um, yeah. So
4: how is this done? I mean, tell me kind of what. So you do.
3: if uh, if you're a health plan, you might have fifteen thousand people in a state that are not compliant with this exam. Uh, We sign with the plans. They hand us that list of 15,000 people and say, go get them. We uh, push that over to our patient outreach and engagement function, which is primarily call center related, although there are other functions we coordinate within that to get the appointments. We set up home visits, or we set up health fairs, or we go to the primary care practice where the patient is. Our tech arrives with this equipment, takes retinal photos, so the non-mediatic photos of the retina, wide field. Uh, We port them over to a retinal specialist within each state. Right now in September, we'll be in 19 states and Puerto Rico. And basically, those are porting out to licensed physicians within that state. They interpret the exams. They can do about 40 an hour on their iPad. We developed a cloud-based platform where they could be on the plane with GoGo in flight and be reading these. Uh, The advantage to them is that they not only are they reading them, but those patients are becoming aware that there's a physician that read them, and they can call that uh, physician if there's advanced care needs. Uh, The full advantage of the system is that it's a triage program. These patients, even if they were all compliant, could not find an ophthalmologist or retinal specialist to see them, especially Medicaid population, unfortunately. So uh, once those are read, the results come back, they're ported uh, through an algorithm to where they need to go and how they need to be viewed, uh, and we submit the claim and we close the encounter.
4: And then if it You know, you're submitting the claim. Are your hands then? Are you out of it, or then what happens if it actually shows that there's eye damage happening? Yeah,
3: we're we're delivering language appropriate information and letters to the patient, so they know there's a problem. We're delivering the results to their PCP, no matter where the care is delivered. That's one of the big problems in healthcare: is that if you go to Walmart or you go to a retail center to get your eyes checked, your PCP never finds out about it. So what we're doing is the plans provide us the physician information and we get the information into their EMR or we auto fax the results. So we're closing the loop And who needs to know. There's the patient, the PCP, the specialist in the plan. That's the best we can do to make sure that enough people that care that that issue is resolved are aware that there's a problem.
4: And so it's not as though you're doing the follow-up care after that, you're just basically making them aware?
3: No, we we, we uh, complete our services at the triage, uh, ultimately the advanced care, and due to stark issues and things like that, it's better that we keep ourselves out of the advanced care. Plus, it's not our intent to separate a patient from a doctor. We're only dealing with non-compliant populations. We're a facilitator to coordinate the patients that need to see a specialist to get to the the specialist so by triaging every 100 patients five to 10 might need advanced care immediately okay so from the physician standpoint they're focusing more on what's their specialty surgery rather than routine checks which they can't do all of those mm-hmm. patients and from the patient standpoint they're getting a more convenient offering and they're sort of being triaged because uh, diabetic retinopathy is a very slow-moving disease it's not urgent if you have mild retinopathy or background retinopathy uh, in year one, it could be year four or five before it even progresses at all. So if, if there's a delay and a, a gap in the you know direct physician to patient, as long as we're evaluating, they're okay.
4: So what's your biggest challenge?
3: Uh, it's a great question. It changes all the time. And I guess you guys will see this. At one time, it was funding, and it's not mm-hmm. funding any longer. Uh, then it's building a team. You know, and making sure that your team is sufficient to represent all the uh, the strategies that you're trying to execute. Um, I would say now our greatest challenge is being disciplined about what we're expanding into, uh, and how fast we want to go wide. Because with our offering, we're not going to be able to patent it, so we can't protect. We can't create a barrier to the market through a patent. What we have to do is ultimately we have to sign these national engagements. We have to execute and deliver because then they're not going to split up and parse this triage work. They give it to one provider. And ultimately, be very careful about do we add peripheral artery disease testing next year or do we wait and really just keep penetrating the market for retinopathy and these ancillary uh, screening exams for diabetes. Uh, additionally, how many states? We we had originally going to go 14 states in Puerto Rico this year. Now we're at 19 in Puerto Rico. And before you know it, there's three or four more that are being presented because this is the time of the year that plans care. So it's that discipline of figuring out how fast do you go? Because if you, if you misstep with your plans, you only get that one chance with them,
4: unfortunately. Well, let me back you up a little bit um, to something you said earlier is that, you know, you're dealing with a lot of the Medicaid population and a, a health plan will basically hand you a list of 15,000 people and then you call them. So having the list, making the call, how do you get them from the phone call into actually a butt in a seat? I mean, is that a challenge, and how do you go about kind of solving that problem?
3: You've, uh, you've sort of <laughs> captured what every investor wants to know, which is a great question. Um, we came to the conclusion that we're not smart enough to change behavior, right? It's just not going to happen. The people that are dealing with this issue are so smart and putting so much energy into it, and the needle is moving very little, right? Ultimately, we said, we don't want to change behavior. We're going to bring it to you. So when we call a patient, and they have an option. The for, and many pl- times the plan is actually incenting them $20, 30 $40 to have this exam for us. That They'll get a, a check gift or a card, or gift something. card or something like that. Uh, but that, that's not the primary driver. The primary driver is they know they have to get this. They're getting the calls. Yeah, come to my home. Thank you. I don't need to go to a doctor. I don't need to coordinate a ride. I don't have to worry about dilation, taking a half day off work if I work uh, or finding someone to bring me. Uh, thank you. Come to my home. 7.7 7 out of every 10 Appointments, uh, every calls we connect with a patient could translate to an exam. So, it's hard
4: for them to not be home. So, if I live, (laughs) there
3: uh, are no shows. (laughs) Fifteen percent no shows at the (laughs) wrong. If I
1: live in Mm Mosquito Country, Jasper County, uh, for you as a business,
3: uh, how does that logistically work out? It's a great question. So, from a plan's perspective, and this is just pragmatism, right? Uh, They have, let's say, ten thousand people spread out. Throughout the state of Georgia, they need to move the needle two thousand patients for their stars ratings or their HEDIS scores, right? There, there, there's a rating that they care about. Um, obviously, our focus centers will be in the population densities: Atlanta, Savannah, Columbus, uh, maybe, um, uh, m- maybe some other slight dense uh, population. Um, We focus there first, but our techs cover the whole state. So from the standpoint of a state like uh, Georgia, we might have four techs in the state, and they are traveling as much as an hour and a half and coordinating eight appointments, two hours, and then coming back. It's, It's just a reality of how care is delivered, but there is more of a focus on grabbing as many patients as possible first, and then if the patients in Jasper want an appointment, we coordinate that sort of less frequently, maybe once a quarter where we're in that area. But they do get an opportunity at that exam, and that's why the mobile techs are key.
1: And so the underlying problem here that we're facing is not so much that the primary care doctor is not doing it, it's the patient won't go to the primary care doctor to get it.
3: They don't go. It's asymptomatic. Retinopathy is asymptomatic typically until it's a problem. So uh, from the standpoint of the patient, and we've gone to doctors, you know, look, you have diabetes. I really need you to get your eyes checked. It's something you should do. It's a leading cause of new cases of adult blindness in the country. Okay, I'll get there. It's a new doctor. It's a new relationship. It's a new copay, a new expense concern. Right. Uh, it's a coordinated ride. You're going to get the drops. You won't be able to drive. You might need half a day for this process. There's just a lot of barriers that create low urgency. It's not as if they won't do it, but they won't do it for years, and that's the problem. You need to do it once a year.
4: So who is actually paying you? Health plan. Oh, health plan. Yep. And do you get paid for the number of people that show up or do you get paid regardless? Per person. Per person. Every
3: time we close the gap, we're paid. So our model is we call it at risk. Uh, There's different ways of doing risk in healthcare, but at risk from the health plan standpoint is you're not charging me some fixed retainer to provide this service. Every time you close the gap, I'll pay you for the patient.
1: CEO of HealPros, Jim Sullivan, has been sharing about the platform that they've developed that, as he was talking about, closes the gap between patients who are at risk for developing retinopathy and ultimately blindness due to diabetes mellitus. Um, we talked about the fact that many of these folks that you're, you're focusing on are Medicare Medicaid-type patients, and, and from a, a patient behavior perspective, it's difficult to get those folks to go when they feel fine, and nothing's really wrong. I feel great. I see great. There's nothing going on to get them actually to go and get these exams that, as Jim was describing, are necessary on an annual basis to, to track the progress, which can be slow moving, but once it reaches a certain point, then obviously now problems are going to happen and, and cost and all kinds of things related to that will occur. And, and I'm curious, uh, I, I guess it gets, life gets very expensive for that patient. If they do ultimately have blindness, then now we're, we're dealing with all kinds of different issues for them that, uh, that they have to try to accommodate then.
3: Yeah. The um, there's been a lot of studies and you obviously have to a little bit skeptical. The ranges in expense that a patient can experience, or the system can experience, when a patient moves into the more advanced phases of retinopathy. I've seen studies as much as 17 or 18 thousand per year for a patient that has advanced retinopathy. What's known, though, is that these procedures, once they require injections or laser photocoagulation to treat with the treat the disease. Uh, They're four or $5,000 a procedure. That is known. And sometimes you need multiple. The, the drug alone, Lucentis, which is often used is, uh, $1,500 a dose, right? So, and that's, you know, per eye. So ultimately there's alternatives around this. But if you could see the Medicare study that came out two years ago, ophthalmology was at the top of the most expensive specialty. In Interesting. Medicare. That was uh, two years ago. This uh, this last year, I think it changed. I would have guessed like vascular. I would have thought so. But really what it comes down to is it's not, you know, obviously they're surgeons, so they're they're getting paid a, a decent amount to do this and, and well-deserved given the limited number of them there are. Um, however, the drugs are so expensive to treat retinopathy. There's an alternative, Avastin, that is an alternative that's about one-tenth the price. But it's not used. Uh, I wonder in, in why. Yeah, yeah, why. Yeah, why? Why not? <laughs> not as much as it you would think. <laughs> that was sar- yeah. that was a
1: that was yeah. a sarcastic
3: yeah. question actually. It's amazing how that works. Yeah, but um, uh, it's a it's expensive care. Uh, the bigger problem is that um the uh the the uh the way the di- disease the disease is so preventable from from affecting your vision. A lot of cases we're seeing now are background retinopathy, which is immaterial to your vision. If you can keep it there by having good blood uh, sugar control and things like this, um, that disease could exist but have no material impact on your vision. It's just when it's neglected for a few years in a row that you see it rapidly advancing uh, and becoming somewhat, you know, uh, it's you can't reverse a lot of the damage. So.
4: so it sounds like with a lot of these patients, the, your texts are really the point of care for a lot of them. Um, I mean, do they end up getting into a lot of um, other situation or other issues or symptoms or health issues?
3: Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously diabetes what? creates a lot of comorbidities, yeah. but from the standpoint, uh, diabetes patients are mainly concerned with their vision, uh, their kidneys, uh, circulatory issues. Uh, but, you know, pretty much anything uh, can go wrong. Um, the, even some cases where they're doing studies of uh, cognitive decline due to it. Um, it routes your body. You know, the, the best thing to be done is sugar control, you know, is controlling your hemoglobin A1c and, and keeping that level in and range. And, and and candidly, we are seeing a lot less advanced retinopathy from five years ago, because the doctors are doing a much better job at controlling the uh, the uh, hemoglobin A1C for patients. Um, the challenge is that if that goes, you know, if the patient falls by the wayside, that can rapidly progress. And when I say rapidly, over three to five years, they can find themselves in a pretty advanced situation. Yeah, well,
4: in terms of a life, that is rapid, right? It,
3: it is because you've never. I've never met a patient that have has lost part of their vision that didn't regret not dealing Doing with something. it sure yeah we. given that it was just so easily it's not even like quitting smoking it's just getting your eyes checked and then being aware that you have an issue and then remediating through more proactive control
4: well i would think that with your text there that the health plans would you know have, have they asked you well while you're there could yes. you and yeah. then what do you do with that and do you charge them more i mean yeah it's per patient so then what
3: well you know, and i like what you guys were talking about in terms of staying really focused um, we only want to design and directly deliver very complicated things that, uh, that are best delivered and most profitable for a company in aggregation. So the reason home healthcare companies use us as a subcontract for this eye exam is that we have enough of a concentration of patients to see to make it worthwhile to do whereas a home healthcare company might only have one or two in the day that might need this exam so as we roll out things that we're designing and developing directly ourselves that we want them to be more complicated and where we can aggregate and focus on a population um uh, but things like the the um cholesterol hemoglobin a1c microalbumin and colorectal screening uh we're using self testing kits from home access care So our techs are not clinical. Again, we're keeping our hands out of the home healthcare space. They're just facilitating, engaging, opening. We just met with a company yesterday, Sensagram, which has a uh, FDA-pending device where you put this device on the finger, just like when you go in the hospital for oxygen saturation, heart rate. Uh, It'll even take the heart uh, rhythm uh, as well as the... um, uh, your your blood pressure, mm-hmm. okay? So something like that where we add that into the visit to gain some biometrics for the plan might not meet the standard of care for full satisfaction of that, but it gives the plan some idea that, hey, has the patient's waist grown three inches since the last time we recorded? That is That needs to be known. Is their blood pressure 180 over 110? We need to know that. It's, it's, it's helping them gain some visibility on where to focus their energies to remediate <laughs> Emergency room visits, right? So there are things we're looking at, and again, we just have to be very disciplined about the idea of trying to do too much. Yeah, because
4: you know? I, I would imagine that the health plans would would be saying to you, "Well, while you're there, could you?" Mm-hmm.
3: They they do say that all the time. But the challenge is, we also don't want to compete with our partners, which are home healthcare companies. So we had an opportunity that we just completed with Highmark in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and instead of us taking the engagement on, we brought in our home healthcare partner and we subcontracted with them so that we could solve the plan's macro problem and be a part of that. Obviously, we're safe in that engagement, but that the, the approach has to be what is ultimately going to solve your client's problem and help the overall system, and then you'll get taken care of. If you just look to protect yourself and do everything, you're ultimately going to make the system more inefficient, right?
4: So how many techs do I mean, how big are you now?
3: Well, right now we have 10 techs. We're adding 30 next month. So we're going to be at 38 techs across those uh, 19 states and Puerto Rico. Uh, it's, it's not linear. Uh, however... Uh, what should appear at the end when we're about 40 states and Puerto Rico, we don't think it's going to grow into North Dakota, you know, but who knows?
4: Um, oh, never say never, Jeff.
3: Yeah. (laughs) We, we will be about 200 techs for just this offering when it's fully ramped out for the national agreements. And it could be 250, but 200 to 250 techs and then a staff. Uh, supporting that of 20 to 30 people.
4: And the staff, I mean, where do the call centers fit into that number?
3: We we outsource the call center. Okay. So one of the key things is, as you say, what are we and what are we not? We're not a call center. We're not a billing company. We outsource all these ancillary functions that are needed in our offering. Uh, what we do focus on, we we hire the techs. They are our employees. They're not contractors. Uh, a lot of home health care is contracted techs. Uh, that's where we believe the patient tech engagement is what we are. No one sees us, but they see our tech. You know, So we invest in them. We invest in how they interact with the patient. We're trying to create a good experience because if they go into the home one year and it's a bad experience. They're not likely to be invited back, excuse me, the next. So that's where we're investing a lot of our energy in our platform, in our techs, uh, as well as our offerings, You know, design. Everything else is outsourced. Okay. The call center billing, et cetera. You
1: know? and, and so you're thinking about maybe moving – your direction towards also being able to make some sort of uh, behavioral changes to modify A1Cs on your patients through
3: counseling, I guess? or Yeah, the, I don't see us trying to modify. Again, we, we don't believe we're good enough in that area uh. to modify behavior. What we're doing is we're gathering data I in that regard. Okay. Uh, we're enabling our plans again. That's not we're we're good at the DRE. That's unique. Uh, we'd like to be good at the peripheral artery dis, artery disease test, but as it comes to blood, blood pressure, hemoglobin A1C, the microalbumin, and these are just data points. For I gotcha.
1: Yeah. Understanding better because it's not so much focused on the behavior around the data; it's just the data, and then allowing the the companies or the providers to then try to modify behavior yeah, based we, on that. We,
3: we spend 20 minutes with the patient. The exam for the DRE takes about 90 seconds, right? So the encounter of setting up, engaging, conducting the exam and exiting is a 20-minute encounter. Right. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for dialogue, a lot of uh, information delivery. But we want that to be led by our plans. Uh, we're not trying to redesign a... We don't want them to see us as the clinician. We wanna see them as, uh, have them see us as an enabler of care in a convenient way, maintaining the relationship with them with their doctor. We don't want to sort of circumvent that relationship. It's just an ancillary, it's like a helper. It's a a supercharger on a system that has an inefficiency. That's all it is. Uh, We wanna make sure they understand the eye doctor is the doctor, we're not a replacement. You should have gone, okay? The PCP is your quarterback of care. We are nothing but a facilitator in this relationship, right? And we tell our plans, we're not a disruptive company, you know, and everybody wants you to be a disruptive technology or company. We're mm-hmm. not. And if that's what you're looking for, it won't happen here. What we're doing is we're facilitating care. I got that's you. It.
4: So you said that you're, you have investment, um, uh, you know, in terms of where you want to be three to five years from now, um, where do you want to be? Uh,
3: the honest answer is Exiting.
4: I like honesty.
3: Yeah. Well, that's our, that's our. when I say exiting to a health plan or to a home healthcare company, we're positioning ourselves for that because we believe where this will ultimately be valuable and where we can't bring it is to the level of aggregating all the services. So a lot of our partners say with your national open scope agreement with some big health plans, you're allowed to provide anything, Um, but we don't believe we're suited to build everything. We're suited to build certain things, and you know, as we set up this infrastructure and we built the services, we understand the the uh, the future of this is larger, and it probably includes someone uh, different than us taking it to the, to that next level. And that's that's our plan.
1: So, what sort of collaboration or partnerships or resources are going to help you? Get, Get to there. your next
3: step. Yeah, so in our next level of funding, uh, we're seeking health plan venture arms, right? F- plans that actually uh, venture firms that are affiliated with the potential exit partner. Um, from that standpoint, not only can they help us grow our business, but they can help us go through the phase of e- exiting to those type partners. So uh, we started our business with angel funding. Um we uh that that is money but that's not strategic funding right and now all of our moves are towards firms that are in the southeast region primarily but focused on with tightly affiliated or directly owned by health plans because that's our key target so
4: got
3: it what else do we need to cover for you that will uh what we talked about that you you know we've talked about quite a bit i mean candidly uh listening to your presentation i was just blown away and impressed and it made me think about a couple things uh when thinking about who you market to um we started with the provider space you know it wouldn't be terrible to think about the health plan space you know Mm -hmm. does the health plan care about it because they're an aggregator and they're powerful over all the systems in a state if they like your offer can they uh be an imprimatur to it or could they directly buy and that's something a big move we made early on that made a big difference in our business because it's really sometimes hard with the best solutions to sell to an over-occupied consumer.
2: That's you a know. great point.
3: Yeah. You know, they're just so busy that uh, sometimes you don't know where you fall in the priority scale. And there's so many mm-hmm.
4: to actually focus on as opposed to the health plans, which, you know, yeah. there's not as, they have a bigger, almost a bigger reach. Than. And,
3: and if they aren't the buyer and they like it, they'll, they'll, they'll create the environment for the providers to buy it and to use it Mm -hmm. for whatever reason because it saves cost, although, like you're saying, a lot of them moving towards encounter costs and not being exposed to that. There's still carve-outs for certain emergency room visits.
4: Right. Uh, What other mistakes have you made that you wish if you had to do it all over again?
3: Boy, so many. Um, Some of the major mistakes were um, sort of building a product absent the client, thinking that there was going to be something that made sense and not testing that sooner with the client that delayed us quite a bit. You have this vision of what you think the offer is. I've got a great idea. They're going to buy it. (laughs) Yeah. And then you go out to the marketplace and they don't respond. And the biggest reason they don't is not that the offer itself will not solve a problem. It's that you haven't considered the incentives of the people at the table. And especially in this healthcare world now where you have ACOs, you have physician groups that are trying to make money, you have hospital through the ACO trying to save and reduce costs, you have uh, the health plans tied in, some health systems are health plans, you almost can't anticipate the reaction of the players at the table, and something that might actually be great might work against the specialists, and they'll block it on the clinical ineffectiveness (laughs) criteria, right? So you have to learn who your people at the table are uh, instead of just trying to design and say, this makes sense.
4: Was it a, a shift for you to come from the world of radiology into this space?
3: Yeah, because we moved to the payer space. It's a big change. But I love that we had an opportunity over the last five years to learn the payer space more deeply because there's a lot of aggregated power in the plans that you don't find trying to sell system by system or doctor by doctor. Yeah. Tell people so. where they can go to get information about HealPros. Oh, uh, you can go to our website, uh, HealPros.com. Um, we uh, we're starting to roll out a video library of for, for our techs, but um, I would say the one other mistake is we haven't invested a lot in those the face to the market because our plans, you know, they don't look on the sites to find us. But we're we're starting to become more aware of our face in the marketplace. I mean, even our name is quirky. You know, so we didn't want to change it until we realized what we were. But it it's so quirky that it's memorable to our clients, so that's okay. You know.
4: Heel pros, why is that quirky?
3: i don't know i mean most people just respond that it is an odd name we met with jocelyn harvard's (laughs) ophthalmology wing and they and i said to them i said guys let's be real we're heel pros we're not jocelyn so we're behind the scenes and they laughed they they were like yeah we thought that too so they like to know that we know our name is quirky uh it it might not map exactly to what we're doing it doesn't exactly make it seem as if that's what we are
4: i
1: get that
3: If you need more information about the folks over
1: at MonitorMed, you can go to monitormed.net, link up with them there. They've got links to their social media as well. If you've not done so already, make sure you sign up for the upcoming Health Connect South event, going to be held at the Georgia Aquarium, taking that uh, facility over here on September 16th. If you go to healthconnectsouth.com and register, use the promo code Radio X, you're going to get $100 off your registration, so I highly encourage you to take advantage of that. If you've not done so already, go to, uh, when you're checking out this podcast, go to the upper left-hand corner of the page, follow the Apple logo over to the Health Connect South Radio podcast and subscribe to us so you can meet all of these cool health experts that we're bringing to you on a weekly basis. And turn around and share this information. You might be the person that uh, puts these folks together with the the resource that will take this to the next level. So how cool would that be to be a part of that? To all of our guests, Bailey Ernstis and Jake Haslow of Monitor Med Solutions and Jim Sullivan over at HealPros, I really appreciate you all taking some time. To the folks at Health Connect South, uh, thanks for being here. Jay Schaefer sitting in on the table and tweeting out for us. And to Diana and your team at uh, ShareWick Media, thanks so much for helping us put this show together and make it possible.
4: Always a pleasure.
1: And uh, for everybody who made us a part of your day today, we really appreciate you. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.
0: This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.Sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.